Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. speaking thank you for downloading episode 141 of the love that album podcast part of the pantheon podcast network with a little bit of luck i've been industrious enough to have edited this show and have it out before december 31 or should i say before january 1 of 2021 so it'll just make the december quota now normally i'd be putting out one or two episodes at this time of year talking about favorite first time listens of the year, but I decided to do something a little bit different this year. We'll come back to that at the end of 2021. Back in the day of Eric Reanimator doing his Love That Album, the compilation edition, he spoke about a lot of anthologies and the like, and that's not something that we normally focus on in the main episodes of the show, but the albums that are on focus for today's show are just not something I could leave out. I'm welcoming to the program Mr. Scott Thurling. He runs a label here in Australia called Pop Boomerang Records, and he's been running that label for about 20 years or so and has championed a lot of really, really great local artists that are not just straight-ahead pop, despite the name of the label. Now, he's been behind a project that came out this year and assembled during lockdown, which is all the more amazing. We'll get to talk to him about how that came to be. But there are two CDs, Sound As Ever Volume 1 and Volume 2, Australian Indie 1990 to 1999. These are not just compilations of existing cuts. 
I'll get him to explain exactly what the project is all about. And joining us on the show will be another man who has been a co-presenter or rather presented some shows by himself when I went off and walk about a few years ago. Uh, Mr. David Blom, longtime friend and also big Australian music aficionado, particularly Australian 90s music aficionado. So I thought it was particularly important to have him involved in this episode and he could grill Scott with some questions as well and talk about the environment in Australia of the time when these songs were recorded. We'll start off with a bit of a chat about the background behind these albums and then in the second half of the show we're each going to talk about our five favorite songs from these two anthologies and there's something like about 20 songs on each CD so 40 songs but we'll pick our top five each or just songs that we want to bring to your attention about the diversity of these compilations and then can inform you at the end how you can snag yourself a copy if you are so inclined if you like what you hear but I really think there's going to be a terrific conversation we'll be back in just a couple of moments I'll let Joanne give you the contact details and then I'll be back at the end of the show to talk about what's happening in January and February of 2021 and love that album I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor we hope you're enjoying the show you can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network to keep up to date subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts Stitcher Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Welcome back to episode 141 of Love That Album Podcast, and I'm really, really excited to have two gents in my home city, no having to deal with international timelines and my tomorrow is there yesterday and anything. We're all in Melbourne, we're all on local time, and it's a great thing. So two very, very special guests. First of all, my compadre, my workmate, my good friend, my gig-going buddy, Mr. Dave Blom. Yeah, good morning, Morris. Wonderful to be on the show again, mate. It's been way too long, and if I haven't thanked you enough, thank you again for those times where you recorded episodes on my behalf where I went walkabout out of the potosphere. I just needed some time away, and you said, don't worry, I'll keep the good name going, and you certainly did. We've kept the show alive, and you've managed then to take it from strength to strength, so all credit to you, mate. Thank you kindly. And on the other end of uh, this Skype connection, we have a man who I probably should have had on the show a long time ago, and he was responsible for getting an interview that I had, oh, maybe back like late 40s, early 50 episodes of uh, Love That Album, but we'll get to that as a question fairly shortly on. I'm talking about the head honcho at Pop Boomerang Records, but also behind a very, very special project that we'll be focusing on this show around, Mr. Scott Thurling. Hi, Morris. Thanks for having me. The album's 
under consideration for this show called Sound as Ever Volume 1 and Volume 2, Australian Indie 1990 to 1999. And Volume 1 is called The Shoebox Diaries. The second one stuck on the 90s. And this is just the tip of the iceberg as to where this project is going to go. But we'll get to that shortly. What I want to start off with is, as I mentioned, you are the head honcho of Pop Boomerang Records, which has been running, am I right, for 20 years or something like that, or a bit longer than that? Just under, probably started building it in 2000, but the first release was 2002. So and we've had about 115 releases since then, yeah. Wow. Now, look, I think I first heard about Pop Boomerang Records from a fellow who was at CineFM at the time when I was there, Mr. Tom Collins. And yes. he was a big, big champion of Pop Boomerang Records. And I found this really interesting. Here's a label that was... Well, despite the fact that it's called Pop Boomerang, as you went and pointed out to me, this is not just pop music, although it's a strong part of it. But I wanted to know, what was the environment like for you? What made you wake up one day and said, I've got to start a label? Were there acts that you felt were not being championed enough, or was it just a niche that was not being met? What happened? Well, if we talk about the 90s, that was my time seeing gigs, and so I saw so many shows, which we can talk about later. But I've got, I had no ambition to actually be in music. So the actual business side of music interested me as well, you know, the street press and the fanzines and things like that. So I was trying to work out a way where I could be involved one day. And so forming the idea of a label came to me and I used to make compilations of Australian music for overseas friends, you know, have the, uh, online communities and email groups and things like that. So I enjoyed making those compilations so much. I thought, well, maybe I could do one of these officially. Um, and that's sort of where the idea of forming Pop Boomerang came from is to sort of champion Australian music. And that's where the word but, you know, Boomerang came and was like, discover Australian bands and take them to the world and bring them back again. So that was a bit of the background to Pop Boomerang. And it was, it's been me the whole time. I've sort of opened the idea of, of partnership and, and, and some help, but it never really happened. So for better or worse, it's been my baby and it's been really rewarding and it's been you know, ups and downs through the journey. Working with independent bands, a real team effort. We all bring different different skills to the table. And we work with great designers and masters and, and some publicists at times, but often I just do my best as well. So. Yeah. You say like with Pop Boomerang, you've had the interest in the business side and you always had gone and made the anthologies for your overseas friends. Yep. And it seems like those little hard to get nuggets for the people who might have already had all the major Pop Boomerang releases from the likes of, you know, Four Hours Sleep and yeah. uh, Danny McDonald and all those great albums and things that you've introduced me to and like the Aerial Maps, which was a huge find for me, thanks to you. But you put out an album a couple of years ago, the third in your collections of Shake Your Pop Boomerang. And was that also like a collection of songs that had not appeared anywhere else. So there was the three volumes of Shaky Pop Boomerang and, and the two of them came really early and then I took a long break to do other things but they were very very popular and sort of recognisable so but we did yeah we did um, Aches and Shakes which was 10th birthday and that was um, that was actually sort of the best of the best that one. Guess I'll go there by myself again and say the things I always do but not for her Will I burn But 
But there was the PB100, which was the 100th release for the label, and that was all exclusive tracks. And, and for, for Shape 3, which came out a few years ago, again, the brief to the bands was, you know, please look for something that a little bit currently out of print or unobtainable. So I think, yeah, I think that was really strong, and, and that grew to be a double album which was a lot of fun to work on and with some great launches in three cities. Oh, that's right. I remember you sort of posting a lot about how you were going to go up to Sydney and meet all the people up there. So where else did you launch? We did Brisbane as well. And the Sydney gig, it turned out to be, just got it in before everything turned sour. So that was the last Pop Boomerang launch. And the Bell Streets, who I think you know on their la- on our label, they actually haven't even played live yet because of COVID. So they, oh. the album came out and they're all ready to go with the launch booked. So that they've had to cool their heels which was pretty disappointing and of course doing the mail order side of it around the world which we do COVID has really killed the timelines for postage and the price of postage so it's made it very hard for indie bands and indie labels now you can't send a CD at a letter rate which used to be you know up to nine dollars now it's like 26 dollars to send one cd overseas and so that's made it really hard so we're just battling those challenges with with music do you think it might change to like a usb type interface or a memory card well if you mean the death of the physical product i hope not there's you know some traditional music lovers that still love cds and vinyl are coming back and even cassette tapes for some labels and bands are becoming appealing again. So, like, we can sell the digital tracks in any format that the fans want. So I guess there's no real need to post anything as small as a USB overseas. People can get those those songs from a file transfer just in their email. But I hope that doesn't become the norm because it takes a lot of the enjoyment out for me personally if we're just moving to a whole digital or streaming platform. And I don't think it'll happen because vinyl booming. CDs are probably in trouble, but some hardcore fans still love their CDs and it's worth doing for my project still a CD because they, they do cost a lot less to, to make compared to vinyl. And there's digital pristine sound, really, you know, practical. And the liner notes. Yeah, they're much better to hold in your hands, I can tell you that, than read on a screen. (laughs) Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm not on the business side of things by any stretch of the imagination, but I still believe that the death of the CD has been over-exaggerated. But once again, not being in the business side of things, I can't say for 100%. I'm in a bunch of Facebook groups where people still love their CDs. But then again, having said that, a lot of them are people who like getting their CDs for two or three bucks off, yeah. off Discog, so there you go. Maybe this is in trouble, I don't know. I don't think they'll become as highly collectible as vinyl has, uh, except the bands that did small amount of numbers and became popular. Like, I, I do see certain CDs fetching big prices. But, yeah, they're cool and collectible to me, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to reduce my own collection as every time I move house, it's hard, but I'm, <laughs> I'm keeping all my Australian Oz Indie, and then if I have something on vinyl and, and CD, I'm tempted to move the CD on, but often you only get a dollar for that, so I may as well keep it, as you said, so yeah, it's those, those decisions. So we sort of met, I think the first time that we had contact with each other was in relation to an act off the Pop Boomerang label that I absolutely fell in love with, and that was the Livingston Daisies. I really wanted an interview with Van Walker and I was told right Scott's the guy to speak to and it was I think a long while after that before I sort of made the connection once we sort of became friends on Facebook and I was following the pop boomerang stuff and more broadly I thought ah that was right that was the guy who I spoke with and um, yeah the Livingston Daisies man oh man they were a couple of absolutely 
fantastic albums and sort of almost like supergroup really. You know, Liz Stringer and Van Walker and Michael Barclay is just oh magnificent pop recordings. I absolutely fell in love with those albums. There's something that I cannot believe that's happened, something that I can't understand. And it's you and it's you. Escape my comprehension Many things I cannot resolve And it's you Yeah, it's you they came out of nowhere, but they came fully formed. The band they had lots of great connections in the in the scene to people like Mick Thomas and the Cure Joys, and that's probably how I I, I knew of them. Um, and it was yeah, really rewarding helping them. We did fan funding and pledge music on, on some of those releases, and and the loyalty from the fans to help get the projects over the line were were brilliant to help raise the money to press the vinyl and things like that. So they were just so good live. Yeah, we we miss them, and we don't know if they'll play again. I know Van's very prolific, and he and he has ideas to potentially get the band back together, but I don't know whether it would be the same lineup or not, the exact same lineup. We'll see. Fingers yeah. crossed. That was just something really, really special. Do bands sort of come to you to say, hey, will you record us? Or have you just built up enough goodwill amongst the bands that you've recorded that people are happy to record an album or even a song? For one of your compilations so like I mean, for instance on Shaky Pop Boomerang 3 you've got even recording a song for you things were never so great that you didn't wish for something better and it's never too late to tie all the ends together you're in love And you've got Charles Jenkins and the Zhivagos who don't have albums out on the label, but they're just happy to send you something because have you built up the goodwill? In the early days, I'd go to the post box and then the box would be full of CDs and, and, and submissions, um, which was really exciting. So I was able to play them and, and approach artists that I liked. Later on, that became email submissions like SoundCloud and things like that, which wasn't quite as much fun. But there's often the word of mouth thing that happens from bands that I've worked with. I worked with Remake Remodel and that's how then I met Frente and, and Splendid and people like that. So, And there's often word of mouth from who you meet. Danny Yao in Sydney put me onto the aerial maps and, and things like that and Modern Giant. So it's a bit of a combination, but when it comes to the compilations, that's when I probably get a chance to approach artists that I couldn't work with individually just because I can't work with everyone. They're either, you know, established or, and it allows me to go through my wish list a little bit, which is nice. Like Chuck and people like that. Chuck's been on two of my compilations over the years. He's given us all a lot of pleasure with uh, yeah. with this wonderful music. It wasn't No Weapon But Love was just the wonderful surprise package of 2020, something that, well, I don't know, maybe you had an inkling that it was happening, but even though I'd heard a couple of new cuts last year when they were doing their Reformation gigs, it didn't occur to me that an album was coming out this year. It was just a lovely surprise. Uh, Yeah, I knew it was coming. I did talk to the members and COVID, you know, killed their momentum too, but they were able to get the, the CD out and the vinyl pressed and do some shows last week. And I know from here, hearing them talk on stage that they're going to do another proper set of launches in the new year. 
they, they really want a sort of second bite of the cherry to play to more fans and potentially not seated and, and really build on the momentum from the release. It's in my top, yeah, it's in my top 10 for the year albums. Yeah. We had Chuck on the show a couple of episodes back and the really exciting news was that he's even been writing some more songs and he reckons that there's going to be yet another Ice Cream Hands album somewhere in the uh, hopefully not too distant future. So I'm just glad that they've found their momentum and they've found their enthusiasm again. It's almost as if uh, COVID has inspired some artists to become really writing machines. Yeah. Yeah, well, if politics doesn't inspire the writers, then uh, being locked down in your room is certainly going to do it. And uh, we've had no shortage of politics and pandemic in our news feeds this year. So whilst I doubt we'll have a quieter 2021 in terms of world news, at least maybe we have right now a chance to breathe a little bit. All right. So the topic at hand, what the purpose, why we're all here today is to talk about your compilations sound as ever. So this started from a Facebook group. Now, for people outside Melbourne or maybe outside of Australia, who don't know what the Sound Is Ever Facebook group is all about. This is where this all started. Just tell us how this came to be. So this happened very randomly on a bit of a whim. I, I know the night, it was Feb 15 because we did um, the shake launch the next day at the Toe. But Jane Gozo, who I've been friends with for years that some of you should know through her media work, um, she just contacted me and said, did I know of like a, a group that celebrated Australian 90s music. I said I didn't think one existed. I had a quick look and she said, would you like to help me run one? And I said, yes, because that's my massive enthusiasm, as you know. And she said, great. And said, what what should we call it? And I sort of said, sound as ever, just brainstorming names. And she said, that's it. That's the name. Uh, it, it really suited. And it comes obviously from a UMI song, which fits the brief. So she launched the group that night with a picture of the Punters Club as the group banner and we invited members and by that next morning there was a couple of hundred people and it's it's a whole place for people to share their memories and their pictures of artefacts and clips and and, and photos and things like that. So by that week, it just spiralled and spiralled into the thousands and there was such a goodwill and enthusiasm and, and media were joining and bands were joining and fans were joining and it just grew and grew and grew. And, and as we sit here today, we've got over 16,000 members. So the heart of the group is the Facebook group, but we've already expanded out to have an official website and a, a Bandcamp site and a YouTube and a SoundCloud. So we're growing and growing. We've got a whole range of merch t-shirts and stickers and fridge magnets and things like that plans for more merch next year and of course we've sort of formed the record label side of it too which we can talk about very soon it's amazing to sort of think and we'll sort of go into more depth in the second half of the show about the songs themselves but the 90s was this period where there was something for everyone i mean i guess you could say that about every decade but when you often mention the 90s to a lot of people their images are either of Seattle and the grunge sound or maybe the Radiohead sound that came later on in the decade. But the Australian scene, it was so diverse, but it seems like a lot of bands that went on to make it really big when the likes of Triple M decided that they were going to jump on the so-called indie-sounding bandwagon. Bands like, you know, Regurgitator and 
uh, Jebediah and Custard and certainly like the Cruel Sea and Spiderbait were making it really, really big. And of course, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds had been a thing forever and they were pulling the sorts of numbers that you sort of thought were more reserved for commercially sounding bands that you would normally hear on the likes of Triple M. So what do you think was in the water? What happened? Why did people respond? And particularly here, I mean, Melbourne is a big music town and I'm not going to take anything away from Sydney, but that's not my musical experience. But certainly here here in Melbourne with bands, with venues, like you've already mentioned, like the Punters Club and the Evelyn Hotel and the Empress and the like, what was in the water? What was happening? We'd gone from the 80s, which was overproduced, highly glossy music to two guitars, bass and drums again. What was happening? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. But it, as I look back now, the, the scene was more diverse than I realised at the time. I think things got a lot safer in the 2000s with you know TV contests and different idol things like that. But yeah, it was just a brilliant time and everyone seemed to have a chance and all styles seemed to have a chance. And I'm listening to stuff now that I missed back in the day. My education just continues. Like I'm listening to music like Sonic Animation or Insurge, which I I probably thought wasn't for me back in the day so I just love that I'm still discovering and uh, you know I'm listening to DefFX more than I would ever have done in the past and things like that so yeah I just it was really exciting time and we didn't have the distractions of Netflixes and the internets and as much and so people did go out and that was a social scene and um, I think that plays a big part of of needing to leave the house to have fun and enjoy music and it was all tied in to seeing bands and things like that festivals were big how was your 90s experience Dave yeah mine was pretty much similar it was my sort of coming of age turning 18 period so going through university finishing off high school and going out into the world and exploring the bands and the sounds that were out there and I was drawn to sort of the inner city scene as opposed to the cover bands that were playing out in my neck of the woods. So who was really appealing to you? I mean I know like we've spoken at work over you know bands like Rocket Science and the like so who else were you seeing lots of? I mean we also spoke on the weekend that we had a passion for the local comedy scene and that was really really big part of the 90s I mean that's the thing we're talking here specifically today about the music but there was so much that was going on with the decision to bring pokies into victorian pubs which could have had a devastating effect overall on the music scene of the 90s in melbourne but there was still so much that was going on so what else do you recall from the time about your broader experience of comedy and music and did a lot of pubs that you used to go to push music aside for the pokies a lot of the venues out in suburbia changed to pokies barns very quickly Mm. and they stopped supporting original music and they tended only to have cover bands so it really concentrated the scene into areas like Fitzroy, Collingwood on the north side of the Yarra and heavily in St Kilda on the south side of the Yarra. So if you wanted to hear creative music, it was a fairly limited scene. It was a community. You'd see the same familiar faces week in, week out whenever you'd go to any of these band locations and you were all there primarily for the music. What were some of your formative experiences? I mean, like I've gone and mentioned on any number because I'm, I'm older than both of you, like my early days, I think my first gig was going to Festival Hall in 1980 to see Cold Chisel and Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. So that was part of that late 70s, early 80s experience. But, you know, you say that you finished high school with going through uni in the early 90s. So what were your formative experiences? What were your earlier gigs? So earlier gigs were the likes of Tism, saw Manic Suede a bucket load of times. Pre-Shrunk was one of my favourite bands, band with two bass guitarists. 
also saw plenty of uh, Violetine who are on this compilation series and the likes of Even couldn't get enough of going out and seeing Ash, Wally and Mike play. So coming back to the compilations themselves, Scott, it seems to me that this would have been a fairly arduous task to put together under any circumstances, but you've not only gone and had the love of so many artists who sent you their tapes of little songs that they might have had hiding in a closet somewhere or some song that they thought was great but didn't fit on a project at the time, and they willingly sent you this tape because... That's the thing. The Sound as Ever group is not just about punters like us. It was also the musicians and presumably band bookers and bouncers, anyone who had anything to do with the local music scene, the indie music scene of the 90s. So you got these songs. Where did the idea come to actually put this out as a CD? And without wanting to sound like I'm pissing in your pocket, the artwork, they look beautiful. This is so well, not just curated as a musical experience but these cds they look terrific how did you do it in such a short period of time just tell us where the cds started so as the group exploded so quickly you can probably imagine it didn't take me long to start to think of other possibilities so like curating a compilation just came to me really quickly and jane was really keen on that so put the call out and the song started to to pour in with lockdown coming and then working from home a lot like it did allow me to keep busy and it was a very very stressful year on so many levels so i do feel like personally the compilations gave me a great focus so I am proud of being able to achieve that in tough times. But, yeah, I work with some great designers like Chris Reese, who's in Tasmania. He just brings my ideas to life. So I just brainstorm titles and ideas and then things like that. So the first one became about tapes, and people can't see that right now. But all the tapes on the cover are actually fake tapes that we made. However, on the second one, 90% of these stickers are actually real stickers that we photographed and photoshopped and we had to make a few so we really put a lot of love into the booklets and we and the members contributed pictures of tapes and pictures of stickers and pictures of amps so we whenever i have an idea call out for the members and i often get a great response and i'm deep down into my next one and again the members are providing lots of great artifacts to help so it really is a group effort just looking so like at the front cover of uh, volume two which you've subtitled stuck on the 90s yeah as you say there's the stickers for the various band names but there's also the radio stations like yes. Sin FM and PBS and Triple R, RTR FM, Triple J, obviously, and stickers for venues like the Tote, the sticker for VB. Well, obviously, you had to put in your own passion of the Richmond Football Club sticker <laughs> there, as, as well as the band names. But this was a whole wide ranging experience for you and presumably for a lot of other people. It wasn't just about the music. It was about the radio station. And those community Mm. radio stations were not just what got a lot of these bands heard. It was just one big community. Yeah, the sticker for Impress. The the Impress and Beat as the street mags, which was where we got a lot of our information. The street press where they'd have the interviews with all these bands and the record reviews and the like. It just seemed like it was all one big community. Yeah, and also we just want something that that screams 90s and even getting that green smile sticker on there a lot of people remember 
those stickers on, on their guitar cases or being handed one on the street for a donation and things like that. So, yeah, it really was fun and a real nostalgic trip to, to put those things together. How hard has it been to track down some of these bands and also track down some of their recordings, the demos and the things that you placed on these albums? So through the years of friendships with bands and just being a massive music lover, I used to get given uh, you know CDRs and things like that of unreleased albums or, or exclusive things. So I already knew a lot of it existed. So when it came time to doing compilations for Sound As Ever, I just knew a lot of this material existed. And whenever I've done the compilations, I've tried to make them as collectible as possible for fans, not just take singles and album tracks. So that's always a big enthusiasm for me is to make them you know, rare and out of print and collectible for the fans. So I think they're really strong considering we are taking that often material from the vault and things like that. But for the compilations, we also put out the call to the members and also to bands saying, please, we want submissions. So that was, we honoured that process as well. There were some artists we knew had stuff when we approached them, but often it was just, yeah, the submissions came in one by one and that was really exciting. Just in terms of the challenges to the scene, the politics meant with the Howard government coming in, things like voluntary student unionism at universities came in and it started to have an impact on the student services and their ability to fund bands and the, the challenges that came in and how innovative bands had to become towards the end of the decade. Also, I suppose, taking it down a darker path, the drugs that were present in the areas in particular, sort of, I suppose, around St Kilda, uh, Collingwood, they were uh, quite a hotbed. And I remember sort of in the early 90s in particular, the Herald Sun was producing the road toll figures. They were also producing the heroin toll figures. And I think, unfortunately, we also lost quite a few musicians in the scene. I don't think that that was exclusive to the 90s because, I mean, I know that that was sort of like a big part of so like films like Dogs in Space in the 80s and Pure Shit in the 70s. So that was always going to be part of parts of those Melbourne scenes, unfortunately. But yeah, it did continue into the 90s, didn't it? Yeah, but also there were important TV shows for bands to gain exposure on. There was obviously Recovery, which was very big on a Saturday morning. Getting your clip on Rage was always a hugely important thing. You had Hey Hey It's Saturday, the midday show with Carrie Ann even. And in the early part of the 90s, thinking back to like Countdown Revolution. It was sort of promoting more of the sort of bands that you wouldn't have thought would have been part of the Countdown scene a decade earlier. Uh, no. You made a very good point to me, like we we're having a bit of a correspondence, that these two albums, in their way, are like an equivalent of albums like Do the Pop and Towers of the Australian Underground. Countdown in its early days would never have thought to play the saints i mean if there's someone out there who watched countdown like far more often than i did and i did watch it a lot bands like the saints and the lime spiders were never going to get a spot on countdown but it seems like countdown revolution and certainly recovery were promoting the sort of bands you know maybe if the saints had come 20 years later they would have had pride of place on those shows very much so you 
mentioned about John Howard. I mean, I just sort of wonder, I know that probably on a, in a more local basis at Jeff Kennett, and I can't believe I've mentioned that man's name on this program, but I guess he has to be brought into the story. Before he came in, you know, Joan Kerner had gone and instigated the pokies being allowed into the clubs, which was something that John Kane had vociferously opposed. But it seemed like, well, Victoria had big financial collapse because of the Pyramid Building Society collapse and huge financial woes in Victoria. Joan Kerner had come to the conclusion, probably with a little assistance from the gambling lobby, decided that bringing in pokies would have been a great thing. And you know, the Whitlams certainly had the right idea about blowing them up. Because Melbourne is such a music town in the 90s, despite the pokies pushing out music from a lot of venues, it seemed that there were always new ones cropping up. You know, there might have been like little pubs. We're not talking about venues that could have had like two, three hundred. It might have just been something where, you know, 30, 40, 50 people could come in and to see a band in the front bar. And it, but it's still, there was a music scene that was going on. So despite the fact that pokies and politics were doing their best to get in the way of music being played, there was enough love and there were enough people who believed in music as entertainment, as a way of gathering and telling stories. That there was still a lot going on. And a lot of my 90s was spent going to see a more rootsy Americana, bluesy and folky sort of bands. And there were always small venues that still supported that and wouldn't let the pokies be part of that. It's always a bit of a uh, push the balloon typing. So in addition to that, you also had the challenges of redevelopment and people wanting to live in inner city locations, a lot more high rise, high density buildings and people moving in and then going, oh, we don't like the sound of the bohemian lifestyle that we moved to this location or the sound of the bohemian lifestyle for. Oh my Lord. Yeah. Look, don't get me stuck. For me, I lived in Yarra Glen um, growing up, so I was a bit of a, a late bloomer. I would, um, I didn't see live music till I went to uni. I think Underground Lovers was the first show that I saw wow. um, live, and then that started, you know, building my confidence socially. And then I moved into the Fitzroy scene and the Punters Club and the Evelyn. And I would, you know, I was on my P's. I would drive in. I would often get there ridiculously early because I was afraid the show would sell out. So I'd be watching bands soundcheck 40 minutes before the doors open. And being quite shy, it wasn't the the social scene for me. It was just all about the music. But I just remember how welcome and and, you know, I felt in the, in those places, even standing alone, it was all about the music and it was a very friendly, welcoming time. Many of these pubs sort of became like your own living room and the band was there performing just for you type thing. Mm. It had that kind of feeling. Look, I remember going to weddings, parties, anything, God knows how many times. I, and it, not just the end of year Christmas shows, I'd see them every chance I got. And there were always people there who you'd sort of recognise, oh, I saw you here last time and... You know, whenever they'd be doing songs I could tell they won't believe or ticket in tats, you know, there'd be arms going around each other and the stupid throwing of the coins during <laughs> Ticket and Tats. Mick Thomas copped a few shiners back in the day, but there really did seem to be something that was very welcoming in the crowd, and it was a great time. The beauty of these compilations and the beauty of you and Jane starting this group, Scott, is that it's the music still sounds fresh to yeah. my ears. It's, it could 
easily just be something that's wallowing in nostalgia. And these anthologies and going back to a lot of these albums shows that it was very, very forward thinking. I don't have a problem with nostalgia, but if the music doesn't still seem fresh, then you've got nowhere else to go. But the beauty of these compilations, which we're about to get to in the second half of the show, really does prove that the music still does have something to say. You've done something really quite incredible here. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like we're documenting that period of time, the second time around. Yeah. All right. What we'll do now is we'll go to a break and then we're going to come back and not quite all time top 10 style, but we're each going to pick five songs and then we'll sort of go in a bit of a round table and talk about, I don't know if they're our favorite five songs from these two compilations, but just each pick five songs that highlight the diversity what's going on in uh, these two compilations and why they are worthy of your consideration, why you should listen to these, why you should get hold of these CDs or you you can download them from the Bandcamp site if you choose to do the non-physical media thing any way that you want, it's there for you so uh, we'll be back in a moment you're listening to Love That Album episode 141 with Scott and Dave For many film fans, this is seen as a classic film quote. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This one is too. You talking to me? Over at Sea Here, however, we're very fond of this one. How many times do I have to tell you? No pizza for you, Joey. Not to mention this one. Grease is the best, man. <laughs> what makes us different to other film discussion podcasts? Tim, Bernie and I talk about films that are music-centric. Ours is the only podcast that has found the link between Hated, the Gigi Allen story, Ishtar, and Yellow Submarine. As well as roundtable film talk, we also speak with directors of music films about their work. So if you love music and you love films, join us at See Here. That's S-E-E-H-E-A-R. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Even Mozart likes the show. <laughs> and we're back from break. Morris, Scott, Dave, we're all in Melbourne. That's a rarity, but I like that. It's the final episode for 2020, and we're ending this shit year on a good note. A lot of good notes, I hope, with this episode. Talking about the two wonderful compilations that Scott and a bunch of other people are behind. The Sound As Ever Australian Indie 1990s and 1999 compilations, Volume 1 and Volume 2. The first one is called The Shoebox Diaries. The second one is called Stuck on the 90s. Actually, before we get into the songs, how many songs do you have for future anthologies? I mean, I know that you have an Earthman album, a previously unreleased album coming out, but as far as these compilations go, how many songs do you have in prep for future 
compilations. Exciting thing is Jane's working on a compilation of her own as well, and she's promised it to be hard and heavy, so whatever that means. I think it's a bit, a bit sort of mine are on the poppy side at times, so she's working on one. I'm working on one. Mine's well underway. It's actually growing to the point where it may be a double album. So, And I think that people, when they hear my next one, might get a surprise because it's even more varied than the first two, which is exciting for me. But can't quite reveal the artist yet, but I've got artwork ideas and, and the title pick. So it's a race between Jane and I to see who can finish first. And so I think that the year can only sustain two compilations next year. And then there'll be a range of other projects. Like you mentioned, the Earthmen, their lost album is the first non-compilation project that we want to do and we've got some ideas for the label and I think it's a home for vault recordings and, and re-releases and also potentially new music from 90s artists which is even more exciting I think so yep. we have a few people we're talking to so sky's the limit really do you think you'll ever get a live album out a live album of older recordings we could do without hesitation we've got some great recordings but the idea of recording a live current show is exciting and also putting a whole lot of bands into the studio to do their recent stuff now is appealing too so yeah it's all about time and money we've got so many things we'd like to do we'd like to do art exhibitions and obviously meet and greets and different things with the members plus you know maybe a mini festival or who knows where all that can go curate different nights and it all started with us being under lockdown and Jane Gazzo having a couple of red wines and thinking <laughs> why is there no Facebook groups devoted to the 90s why and it's not even a year since that happened. Yeah, that red, that bottle of red's become famous, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, overseas music entrepreneurs you do well to document your own local scene because that's the great thing it's not just great music but you'll become historians and maybe you didn't even know you were doing that at the time all right so at this point what we'll start doing is talking about our favorite five songs each from these compilations or maybe just five songs that we really really like that want to point out because of their diversity so normally i would defer to the guests to start off but my first pick i think in encompasses everything that this year has been about. It's a song that I know that you're both really, really in love with as well. So I think it's a perfect way to start this show. So my first pick is from the band that used to be called the Warner Brothers, then became Overnight Jones and are now back the Warner Brothers. I'm talking about this song. Indeed, their anthem, Stuck in Melbourne. He packed his things and it threw them as Now, as I said, this song could have been, and probably is, justifiably the theme song of the Melbourne lockdown, or our second lockdown in particular, three months where we couldn't move five kilometres from our home and basically told, don't even move out of your front yard if you can avoid it. I mean, the song really isn't about a lockdown or anything like that, but just the name, Stuck in Melbourne again, the character, he can't seem to get away from Melbourne either, literally or in his head romantically. And financially, he doesn't have the means to do so. Right, exactly. Dan Warner may be the face of the band, but so many of these great songs were written by James Stewart, ironically, another film-related name. 
and I'm very excited to say that both of them are going to be Love That Album guests early in 2021. Really looking forward to that. So my question to you, Scott, the version that we hear on Stuck in the 90s of Stuck in Melbourne, that sounds to me like the same version that's on Talking in Your Sleep, is it? Or is it a slightly different recording? It is the same version. When I was doing the compilations, I was one song short. And as you mentioned, that song just jumped out of me as being so fitting. It technically fits the brief because it's out of print rather than unreleased. And it just meant made sense to breathe life into that song because once they got sued and had to change their name, that song's been unavailable since. So it's remastered. So it should, hopefully it should sound better than the CD version. It sounds absolutely Absolutely wonderful. The only album of theirs that I had for many years was Ice Back Gas in their overnight Jones period. And yeah. That is a very different sounding band. This is more, I guess, you know, more laid back, more weddings, parties, anything Americana sort of thing. Ice Back Gas, particularly because of the drumming of Ian Kitney, it was a really, really tight pop band that's not taking anything away from the Warner Brothers sound, but it was just, it was a different beast. Blommy, you went and alerted me to the fact several years ago that Dan Warner and Dave Evans were busking outside of uh, 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 Parliament Station. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they were walking jukeboxes. They weren't doing any of their own material. They were just picking their favourite 70s, 80s and 90s songs and just playing for the joy of it. And I said, how the hell, why are you doing this? You know, you, you're a recording artiste. Why would you be doing that? He said, oh, we, you know, we've got to rehearse, so might as well busk and make a little bit of money out of it, which is a great thing. But you know, he's been still putting out cracking albums and he was doing Triple R for years and years. He's only just stopped doing the uh, Johnny Von Goes. And the Warner Corner. And the Warner Corner. But he's really very much an integral part of the Melbourne music scene. Absolutely loved him. I just love this song. It's so evocative. I'd say that James Stewart is the equal of Mick Thomas or Paul Kelly in terms of evoking images through his lyrics. The hairbrush on the dashboard and that line, Caroline Chisholm being lonely in his wallet, reflecting the $5 note of the time. I, God, who writes lyrics like that? Well, I mean, okay, I guess I've gone and said, yeah, Mick Thomas and Paul Kelly, but it seems a crime that James Stewart isn't celebrated around the country as a lyricist like those guys are. They're just absolutely fantastic. And I've only recently gotten to hear his solo work and the lyrics there as well. They're musically fantastic, which you'd expect, but the lyrics are just poetry and it brings a great Australian tradition of storytelling and of authorship. It's just fantastic. And I just love the fact that Stuck in Melbourne is on these compilations. I know the focus is more about songs that didn't quite make the cut or alternative demos of songs that became known for these bands. But I love the fact, Scott, that you said, yeah, it met the brief. It had been out of print for so many years and you were able to include it. And presumably Dan and James were, yeah, here, sure, have it. Yeah, um, it, it's been really good and, and re received really well. I was lucky enough to be sent uh, Warner Brothers Stuck in Melbourne bumper sticker from mm. back in the day, which I need to get on my car soon because that'll be a talking point as well. <laughs> they gave me a copy of the sticker very recently because I got a couple of uh, CDs off them that they just had lying around in the shoebox. Yeah. And it's sitting here on my shelf. I can't bring myself to, <laughs> to peel it because what happens if the car crashes? Then what? No, then I'll, the car can go to hell, but that sticker has to be with me. So. 
I've got one on the fridge, actually. <laughs> Hopefully the fridge doesn't break down. Well, if the fridge breaks down, then you can use it to store your albums. <laughs> Whack it on your drum case. Yeah, good point. Yep, the, the drum kit's going nowhere. That's it. That's a, yeah, a good suggestion. Glad I had you here. All right, so that's my first pick, Stuck in Melbourne. So we'll go to you, Scott. What is a song that you want the listeners to know about? Well, sticking with Melbourne theme, Fish John West Reject and Brunswick Girl. I came down the came down on a train Cut my heart in 16 ways and cut it up again Brunswick Girl band who you know because I've seen you plug their stuff on Facebook recently they did two albums and a number of singles this track was written by Mark Adams from the band who went on to form Hurdy Gurdy and Slurper and record lots of 90s bands and Brunswick Girl is the song and it was a demo for their second album it didn't it didn't make it so it's great to get this one out of the vault and as they say they're a Tassie band and they sung a lot of about Tassie locations and this is their only Melbourne song a really great Melbourne song and not only a great Melbourne song but certainly a that, that north side of the city where all the musicians congregated. The Fish John West Reject, I remember getting hold of that initial album, Swim, shortly after it came yep. out. I got to see them at the club down in Smith Street in Collingwood. And I think, and Dave, you'd remember this band, the support act, I'm pretty sure on the night was Captain Coco featuring uh, Dave O'Neill. He had more fame as a radio presenter and as a comedian but it seemed like every other morning on the breakfast show on Triple R, he'd be talking about Captain Coco. It was a bit of a joke. Yeah, it, it also became a, a running punchline throughout Six and Sex, and they showed many of the, the Captain Coco videos over oh, the really? Spot. Yeah. Yeah, coming back to The Fish, I just love that first album because it was very, very acoustic. I mean, almost violent femmes-like in a way. Acoustic pop. When we think of acoustic music, it's often more in a ballad sense or maybe slightly medium tempo. But these guys could rock with acoustic guitars. And Brunswick Girl and what I've heard from Finn, the album which I now need to get, it sounds like they, they went electric. I mean, musically, they were still doing very similar things. Very bright, major key, up-tempo pop but they went electric like Dylan did in 1965, if you will. But it's still musically within the mould of what they were doing before. This is a great cut. I'm so glad that you uh, were able to get... So was it Mark himself who sent you this? Is he, is he part of the group, part of the Facebook community? Yeah, he's in the group. Um, he didn't send me that one, but he was thrilled to realise that we picked that one. So I'm um, always talking to him. He's um, got all these recordings in, in storage, so I just can't wait for him to get back on the land and, and dig into that treasure a chest for future compilations. Where is he now? Is he in Melbourne? I think he's on a boat. (laughs) I think they're like living on a boat somewhere at the moment. COVID changed their sort of attempts to come home and things like that. So I need to catch up with him to find out exactly where he and the family are. Right, right. Okay, Dave, your first pick. Yeah, well, uh, keeping with the Captain Coco uh, link <laughs> is going to be my choice, so I think Scott knows where I'm heading with this one. I'm going with uh, Moon Driven, A&R Soul. Another cover version, backup plan if the rap is low 
Mark Murphy's uh, singer and guitarist was also in Captain Coco. But the reason that I was drawn to this band was uh, the other links that they had. Previously, a number of the members were in the band Right, which featured Ewan McCartney, who wound up in Snout. So right. that was my first sort of uh, port of call with this band. So had a few uh, Right songs and CDs lying about because of uh, my enjoyment of the band Snout. And also following this band, they ended up going into Jake's squad, uh, the drummer Michael Alonso. He also ended up being a producer for the Living End T76 and did quite a bit of technical work with Magic Dirt and Spiderbait. Quite a lot of very interesting connections with this band, but I also just loved the song, the energy, the voice of sanity versus the insane shouting over the top, though, the dueling vocalist on this track. I didn't really know anything about the band Moon Driven. I did know the song Moon Driven by Wright, yep. which is a cut I really, really like. But this was news to me, this one. Uh, well, this, the band in general. So, uh, did they play much? Not now. Well, back, back in the day. Uh, I think they weren't as active as Ripe were. A couple of EPs, and then they actually reformed Ripe for another recording. So, sort of ebbed and flowed a little bit. But there's a lot of recordings that they have that I've heard that are unreleased. So, yeah, this song just, it, it was the natural number one track on the album to me. The way it bounces out of the block. The lyrics are really interesting, and I've heard a few whispers about who they may or may not have been written about, um, which is, makes it interesting to have some guessing games. So, it, yeah. it very much sounds UMI-esque in terms of its initial delivery. Mm. Oh, it's a ripper. Is Well, I don't want to say the ghost because they're still the going concern, but is the spirit of UMI hanging over everything that this group does? I mean, you've gone and named them, as you said, after the debut well, maybe not really the debut album, but sort of the debut album of You Am I. Does this spirit hang over everything that you do? It's, it wasn't deliberate. Copped a bit of flack at the start for the You Am I connection, but really it's just just inherent. It's it's the spirit for sure, but it's so much broader than that. Um, sure. they, they were flattered that you know we use that name. And I can reveal Tim Rogers is writing the liner notes for my next compilation and he submitted an amazing piece of, of text so yeah i can't wait for everyone to that is wonderful read that. yeah it is one of the things that i've noticed whenever i've posted about particular bands or commented about bands how the band members themselves jump online and go oh yeah i remember that gig we were doing this blah 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 and they give you their side of the story as well it's great because it also means the members have to behave themselves a little bit when suddenly <laughs> An actual band member can come on and have their say or, or shoot them down. So, you know, it's a pretty polite group, but occasionally things get a bit, bit hectic and we have to close a few threads. There's a few usual targets, which is a shame, but that's life, isn't it? In a group of 16,000 plus people, I think that if you only get the occasional bit of flaming, then you're still doing pretty well. I agree. Because I don't know if you've heard this, but people on the internet have opinions. It's <laughs> just, just a rumor I'd heard. <laughs> All right, my second pick is a band that I think you sort of introduced me to when we sort of first met face-to-face. This is one of your passion bands, and we mentioned them by name earlier, The Earthman, and the track that you've got on this album is an earlier version of a song called Whoever's Been Using This Bed.
you've been a huge champion of the Earthmen, and you recently released, well, when I say recently, like, you know, maybe going back a couple of years or so, you put out an album of theirs called College Heart, which was something they were recording, I believe, at the time of their breakup. I do remember seeing the cover of Love Walked In back in the day in, I don't know, maybe it's all Go-Go or somewhere like that. Or on Hey Hey It's That Day. Yeah. Recovery. Recovery. On Recovery, they dressed up a model as the person from the cover and trotted him out, which was quite funny. Pixelated out. So tell us a little bit about their background. Well, maybe tell me and maybe all the mm. maybe all the listeners to the show will sort of say, oh, you don't know that. They were one of the bands I saw potentially the most. I loved their songs. So they started very early 90s and had a number of lineup changes. Their sound evolved from being quite noisy and then to, to lusher and a bit more Brit poppy at the end. But the core songwriting um, duo of Scott Stevens and Nick Batterham sort of saw the, the journey out and they were on Summer Shine and then they signed to Warner's and had a good go of it. You know, they did some supports like Alanis Morissette, things like that. And, and the, the, whoever's been using the bed song was probably the biggest radio song for them. So yeah, I just love them. And so I got them back together for that retrospective and they recorded four new songs back in 2016 and played live again. It was nice to sort of approach the band and and sort of say, can we get a song on this first comp? And that led to discussions of this lost album, which they recorded with Wayne Connolly. So it was between the Summershine years and the Warner years. It was probably an album they were recording for Summershine or potentially to shop around that never got finished. We, we had some final mixes, but it never got full treatment. And then Warner's came along and said, hey, here's our money. We'd like you to do it again, which they did, which became Love Walked In. So some of the songs got re-recorded and some never did. So just an album we're doing called Periscope, which was the name of the studio they recorded at, has been sitting in the vaults ever since. So this track you're about to play came from that. And now we've had the whole thing mastered and artwork done and liner notes done. And we're doing pre-sales for that at the moment through the group, which is going well. And we're looking to try and get them back on stage in, in March to launch it. So that's exciting for myself and all the Earthmen fans. Yeah, there was always so much energy to their live performances. Yeah. Like uh, Scott always seemed to be jumping about when he was performing. And Nick Batterham's guitar was just, I think, really underrated at the time. I can remember seeing them ooh, <laughs> quite quite late into the piece that yeah. was always very impressed with, with their sound. But I was really taken with how different this version is, mm. how it is so much more string-focused compared with the really Britpop electronic type feel of the actual single when it was released, which really did contrast to their much more guitar-focused sound whenever they played live. Yeah. Well, I'll be honest, I actually prefer the version that you've selected for this compilation, this earlier version, mm. whereas it seems like the one that came out later on the, the strings uh, maybe a little bit more schmaltzy to my liking, but the version here where the, you, know, you hit a cello early in and it, it just it almost sounds a little bit melancholy and it just really emphasizes the lyrics of the song a bit a bit really yeah a little bit yeah 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 i'd also gone and listened to their album or their ep i think it was uh, the fall and rise of my favorite 60s girl so you've already gone and made the comparison dave to a blur sound at least on the finished product of whoever's been using this bed but that recording the fall and rise of my favorite 60s girl really sort of evoked for me something more of the american side of things fountains of wayne which and power pop was my big thing of mm. the 90s uh, the american 
American side rather. Normally, I would have thought I'd be more like on the British side of things. But as far as the 90s goes, uh, moving outside of Australia, I would have said I have a huge passion for uh, the American side. I have Velvet Crush and Fountains of Wayne and the like, you know, just just that's what more evoked, I guess, that that 60s pop spirit and some of the garage rock that was coming out as well at the time. But that's what that sounds like to me. One final thing I wanted to say, because you mentioned Nick Batterham and one of the albums that you got me to listen to, Scott, was uh, Closing Time at Yaya's, which I just absolutely adore. And it's a world away from this. It's very stripped back. An album I love and I've gone back to quite a few times and just want to point to the listeners their way. That's something that Nick has gone and done he's made a bit of a name for himself on your label outside of earthmen and really to his credit there's just some gorgeous stuff there it's a great album we did four albums together hmm. which was really fulfilling and he's i think he's done five today and working on a new one so he's very prolific where scott um the singer he did the summer cats project and he's also he sings with different people like bart and friends but he's not quite as prolific as nick yeah all right we'll now go to um, your second pick Scott. My second pick is Bangkok Greenhouse. missed the first time around back in the day maybe they'd broken up by the time I was fully tuned in but the Sanders Ever group got me into Greenhouse so they were from Geelong and they had some early EPs and singles and potentially had a bit of a buzz about them with Triple J and things like that and they have told me themselves they got really close to some big deals and then things just sort of fell apart. The song Pray is actually an unreleased demo from back in the day and I think it was recorded at Triple J Studios and for a demo it's just an amazingly big lush song you know it reminds me of The Cure and things like that so just a really special song and I do know the band are recording again and I hope to do gigs and music in 2021 so yeah I really love Greenhouse and this song. I think I want to jump on that bandwagon this song is really really gorgeous to me the guitar sound that guitar shimmer it has what I call the summer sound and yeah. it evoked to me that I can't quite be sure why but it gives me a David Lynch feel I just it gives, mm. it sounds to me like something that should be in either a David Lynch film because maybe the guitar sound something to me like on on that Julie Cruz album that came out about the time of Blue Velvet or maybe it belongs in an 80s American rom-com at that moment in the film where the couple that you know are going to get together by the end are just walking away and they're both feeling miserable without each other and is that collage or sorry, John, uh, that, John, that montage. John Hughes film or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Hughes. What was oh, what was the one with John Cusack? He holds up the radio. Say anything. Or? Say anything. It yeah. belongs in that for a '90s band. This it, it almost has an '80s feel, but for a demo, it sounds really, really full and lush. Yeah, lush is a great term. Yeah, gorgeous song. Beautiful. We've made yeah. a made a film clip uh, for this song too, um, oh, wow. which we can reveal soon. It's just it's yeah, it takes the song to an even bigger place. Really Reading in the liner notes of that, maybe you can sort of elaborate on this a bit. How common a story was this where they said that the original master tapes were just rubbed over? They couldn't release it at the time, so it got used for something else. And this came off a TDK 60-minute cassette for this album. Still sounds fantastic. 
but how common a story was that for a lot of the bands that you have on this compilation, or indeed a lot of 90s bands who aren't on these compilations, where they recorded something in a studio, the finances fell through, they yeah. couldn't do it. How common was that for a lot of these songs to get lost? Well, I think tapes were expensive and things were re-recorded. Heaps of these songs on the two compilations have been salvaged from DATs or CDRs or old tapes. And Ernie, my mastering champion, he's been bringing things back to life. He's been doing a great job. So the Jericho track on, on one of the compilations have been sitting in my garage, probably without a case, you know, move after move. So we've just, yeah, we've done a great job mm. in digitising and mastering things. All right, Dave, your second pick. Yeah, uh, chemistry fans, please come forward. Um, <laughs> uh, Spurford, uh, uh, all the while. I'm going to make you high Well, I try. I'm going to reach for the This was a band that I was put on to by a mate at uni. We were both studying chemistry amongst our subjects at the time, and it comes from the chemistry of determining the number of electrons and how they're positioned in the uh, shells of an atom. And it also has some interesting outcomes as far as the wavelength emissions of light and spectral lines. And their name comes from the letters S, P, F, D, G, H, the first four of which stood for sharp principle, diffuse and fundamental. And being chemistry people, they've just gone, well, what do we use for the next one? Well, we used F for the last one. Let's make the next two G and H. <laughs> um, but as a band, I just love their riff-based feel. They did get plenty of Triple J airplay, and they were headed by the Bauer sisters. Tanya, who became um, via Tanya, and was very big in the electronics scene, and also a member of the band was Liz Payne, who ended up joining up with uh, Brad Anderson of Girling, who was a band who also saw quite a fair bit of in their backpacker era. <laughs> and I saw Spudfugger at uh, the Tote when they uh, toured Melbourne back in about 96, mid-96. was just really taken with their non-stop riffs that they'd just belt out in their tunes. So this track is sort of got a bit of a funk feel. I mean, was that a lot of what they were about? Yeah, it, I think it's pretty representative of them with the, the big guitar sound and yeah, four women on stage belting out big rock anthems. Did we have enough of them? I don't think so. No, but I suppose in the other directions that some of the members went, certainly uh, Liz Payne in particular has, has gone on to do quite a lot of other things. It would be nice to get them back belting out the tunes again. Yeah, it was a thrill to get a track from them on the compilation. Nick from Half a Cow helped me do that. They say they were going in a new direction, but at the time it was much more that they had a male bass player for the first time on this recording, I think, because it does represent their sound well. And Yeah, it's a great song. To digress for a little bit here, I remember like Half a Cow were a big label in the indie scene in the 90s. Did you have any favourite labels? Yeah, so Summershine and Half a Cow um, were sort of the two that inspired me. I was a big fan of uh, Waterfront and Phantom before that, or Go-Go, of course, but Summershine doing the pop stuff and Half a Cow 
were probably my main two inspirations. And I got to know Jason uh, Reynolds and, and, and Nick Dalton. And they, they weren't mentors, but they definitely answered all my geeky questions back in the day. So that was nice. And just as another little aside, did you ever reach out or to anyone in New Zealand? Did you know much what was going on in the New Zealand scene at the time? So um, Flying Nun. Flying Nun, I guess we associate more with the 80s or anything. Were they a going concern in the 90s? They still had the last sort of wave of garage land and people like that. But not personally, I didn't sort of reach out. I had some pop fans to talk to and things like that, but yeah, nothing on a label front. Any of our New Zealand listeners who want to do what Scott's doing would love to hear a compilation of a similar nature from uh, the land of the long white cloud. That'd be great. All right, we're going to go now to my third pick. And this is a band I'd never even heard of. And that's the thing. There's a lot of songs on these compilations from bands which I knew of by name but hadn't heard the material. But this is a band I hadn't even heard of. This is called Arosa, and the song is called To Forget. This is a song that may try the patience of a lot of other people. It's a nine or ten minute song that sort of revolves predominantly around one chord and it's drone sounding. But there's a great song from the Stooges, We Will Fall, which is even more like of a drone. And that sort of thing has always appealed to me. Yeah, I just really, really enjoyed this. Now, I went and listened to a couple of other songs from Arosa online. I listened to a cut called Salt and another one called Stick Girl, both from the P called Stick Girl and I mean I don't know would you say this is shoegaze I'm not really sure potentially I mean it's very atmospheric and it builds and builds yes and it's fragile but Maybe shoegaze, but not not as traditional as I think of shoegaze. This is a song that, I don't know, it just really, really appealed to me the more and more that I played it. In the first half, has Andrea singing her vocals over the gradually building sound of the band, and then the last four or five minutes or so is just the band building up without her. I mean, I love that style of voice. I'm a big fan of the band The Paradise Motel. Yeah, yeah. I, I love mood-driven music. And there's this intensity. And another band which, I don't know whether they were around like in the late 90s or more. In the, I think it's more like in the early 2000s called Silver Ray. And I went yeah. to see them a few times. I remember when New Love was being played like as a radio only release before they eventually re-recorded it for the general public who desperately wanted it. And it's music that's different to Arosa, but I put it in the same camp as mood building music. They just sort of improvise around a chord or a couple of chords before building up and then fading out. I find the intensity, I like the build up and I wanted to emphasize this not just because it's something that I love, because it is, but because it's, I think, completely different from anything else that you have in these two anthologies. I'm just so thrilled that this is there. Was there anything else that they ever released back in the day? No, I only know of the two EPs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this song comes from a full Lost album and we would like to release it. The track was received so well from the compilation from members. It's just about spending that time to make sure there's no rights issues and things like that. So it might, it might be one for the future, but we'd like to get that out to people. The band are keen to be, have it be heard, yeah. Actually, so that's a question I forgot to ask in the first half of the show. Was it an issue with rights? Because you release these compiles 
really, really quickly. And normally the rights of a lot of songs would take ages to clear. Was it the fact that these songs, for the most part, never got released? That there were no publishing issues? Yeah, so most of these bands have no publishing, no current label. They are fully independently in control of their own songs, which makes things much more simple so um, we have got some bands on our wish list and some bands that would like to work with us who do have long-standing 90s publishing arrangements and that's not easy to navigate so we're trying to help people so it's a bit of a minefield and a a learning experience for sure but some yeah some 90s musicians are really locked away and they they don't have control of their music and they can't re-release things physically which is hard for them i have one facebook friend who's something of a music journalist and he just basically posted this thing saying he advocates all his musician friends who have their music locked up in rights issues they have no but they have no access to their own music and they're not making any money out of it and they can't do anything independently they said you know what the uh, publishing houses and the record companies they can't come after all of you just release your albums <laughs> any way you see fit and see what happens on the one hand it sounds romantic but it's, it's just going to take even if only one group or one person gets their ass sued yeah i think it's better to be upfront about things where possible and communicate yeah it's tricky All right, what's your third pick? So my third pick is one of the obscure underdog tracks that I like to put on my compilation. So it's by Braids and the Sofa Bed song. She's so much older, so much older than him. He's so much groovier, I wonder where he's been. She spends Sundays sewing, or at least she says she tries. be shocked if people know too much about the braids i wanted to get this one on because it features jane gazzo on lead vocals and so after her band rub her broke up she got together with ross mclennan from snout and they wrote and recorded a full album which this song comes from i don't think they played live and the project sort of has sat in the archives till now so they make a good pair and it's very much sort of a brit poppy type song which was big around that time and jane's vocals suit that perfectly very bouncy catchy song so yeah that's my next selection i was glad to find a home for that on the compilation jane if she never recorded a song in her life would still be a music industry legend i mean (laughs) presenter on radio and you know both public access and commercial radio and she was like a biographer and this year she was like the, the host on the sound on the abc is there nothing that she doesn't do? And she goes and starts up this whole group, which has now got 16,000 people. And to find out that she's kind of recorded some music as well, that's absolutely fantastic. I will just sort of point out that when I got the CDs in the mail and I put them on while I was working away, my son was in the other room and he was listening and this was the first song yeah. on that compilation that perked his ears up. He said, this is really, really good. Yeah, that's uh, great feedback. Yeah, He's a metal guy. He's a solid. <laughs> metal guy but this is this lovely quirkies is Ross playing bells on this oh gee sounds like toy bells or something I just want to know what that what that instrument is but oh, it's fantastic I'd certainly be interested in hearing a whole album of this material well yeah you have to start up lobbying for that one <laughs> a braids fan club <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we, yeah, we did have to create create the sticker for braids. It, it didn't actually exist, right. so that's one one secret to give away from the artwork. <laughs> you heard it here first. Thanks, folks. thanks, Paul Smith. Yeah. All right, Dave, your next pick. I think I'll go with a band that I first saw at the Esplanade on uh, New Year's 1998, and it's Violetine and the track Mold. Keep inside the roots, nothing up to fade. Promise that you'll bore me and make me go away team were a rather hard-working three-piece. Singing bass guitarist Glenn Lewis was really driven, had really a very, very good driving bass line and a very husky voice to go with it. And the backing and assistant vocals of uh, Sean really gave this band a huge pulsating sound whenever they played gigs. I can remember a triple headline gig that they did with Manic Swade and Pre-Shrunk where they were the headline act one day and the first on the next, they reversed order that uh, they were performing in. I also remember seeing them on the Turn Up Your Radio tour uh, with the Foves and Pollen and just really, really good memories of them playing their shows. More often than not at the Esplanade Hotel. Just the experience of hearing them. I've also dug out my copy of uh, Small Speaker Joyland uh, to give that an, another spin for the first time in ages upon uh, hearing it in this compilation again. This is a cool track. To me, moulded something of, well, I guess, what we think of the 90s in with its quiet, loud, quiet feel tribute to the pixies and a, a very different feel to sort of their their big singles any day and birmingham and i believe that they've recently reformed and they were back playing gigs so hopefully uh, 2021 we'll see them back on the scene as we hope many of these bands, now that they've been given some new life through these comps, will be able to do. Yeah, well, uh, they did play some gigs, I think, with uh, Super Jesus uh, in 2019 and the Celibate Rifles Oh man! in 2017. So, yeah, some pretty handy support. <laughs> so my fourth pick, we're sort of on the uh, penultimate picks now. So, yeah, my fourth pick was from a band that I hadn't heard of, but really, really dug, and I'll get to in a minute why it was inevitable that I picked this. The band is called Yoke, and the song is So Cool. I bet your mother tried to talk you out of it She said you never do nothing good even heard of these guys and I guess I could be forgiven seeing as according to the liner notes they'd only recorded one in peace splitting up while recording the second since they had no money and no label and that sort of really amazed me because I sort of thought that every working band out there at the time could always find some indie label it seemed like there were a ton of indie labels around at the time every band but 
look, I might be wrong on that, but it's just really amazed that they couldn't find some small backyard label that had been created specially for them. This song is just a great piece of power pop. The first thing that came to my mind when I heard this song was, wow, there's a strong touch of UMI or even or Ice Cream Hands, dare I say, in this song. And then I read the notes and see that Marcus Goodwin was in this band who jumped ship to join the Ice Cream Hands after they broke up. So it made complete sense. And yet when you listen to you know, Sweeter Than The Radio, which was his first contribution to The Hands, this song just makes so much complete sense. And we all sort of think it's going to be Charles or Doug who dictates the songwriting sound. But then you listen to this and you think, wow, Marcus is really a big reason for the Ice Cream Hands sound if this is something that he'd been doing before them. And I just love the fact that the sweet sounds of power pop are included in this collection because it shows that was a genuine part of what was going on in the Australian scene in Melbourne at that time. Marcus gave me the CDR of the unreleased EP like in the early 2000s, so I've been, it's been in a shoebox in the back of my mind all this time looking for a home, so like this is the, the perfect project for it um, rather than one of the pop boomerang comps because the band aren't, aren't active or anything like that. So. Yeah, it was great. It was great to get that on the compilation. It's so catchy. It seems like the '90s there was a, another thing where bands would release a lot of EPs. I mean, the common wisdom is you do a single and then you do an album and then you release four or five songs off the album or something like that. But it seemed like during the '90s there was a return to maybe the '60s mentality of releasing EPs that had all or mostly songs that never made it onto an album is that maybe like a project some of these bands have approached you saying hey well why don't you put like an album out with four or five eps from multiple bands is that something you'd consider uh yeah definitely uh hasn't been proposed yet um and we're definitely talking about retrospectives career retrospectives of those eps with exclusive tracks but yeah the idea of pairing some like sounding bands that maybe only did one ep is, is got, got a lot of merit but mm. i think Certain indie bands can only afford to record an EP and then certain bands that got signed, then those labels liked the idea of building them up EP by EP. So it was a time for EPs, which we'll have in our collection still. Mm. A lot of those doing the round, even you know, my beloved Weddows, who were signed to a uh, well, a major with Warners and then Ruart, were putting out all their songs from Difficult Loves and King Tide. They had like about, I don't know, God knows how many EPs they put out with about four or five bonus cuts each time and I'm so thrilled that I have those sort of like you know two CDs worth or three CDs worth of Weddow's tracks just yeah absolutely marvellous but I know a lot of bands did that at the time so alright Scott your fourth pick okay so it's another sort of more obscure one it's by Frickin Shit's in a shit and small Pieces of frozen rain Hammer hard The window pane Again and again And again and again And again Who some people may not know of But they will know the members involved And they will know the voice So singing is Billy Baxter from the Hollowmen mm. uh, Eva, Eva Summerfield from Hurdy Gurdy and the Foots And Leo Mullins from the Benedicts And the Welcome Mat and Small Knives And bands like that Again, um, Billy gave me this demo CD a long, long time ago And I've always loved the five tracks on it Our members love Billy and all the work he did So it was great to be able to choose one For the first compilation And the song is called Shit Scared Which... 
how, how Australian is that expression? <laughs> the first thing I hear the title Shit Scared, my head goes back to the D-generation, the late Yeah, show. yeah, yeah. They must have known about Super Dave Osborne and Bob Einstein, which was that character Rob Sitch would play. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is, this is a great track. And until I read the line of notes, I didn't realise that that was Billy Baxter yeah. on lead vocals. And I certainly remember the Holloman. And my first hearing of the name was, like I guess a lot of people of my age, was uh, hearing the Paul Kelly and the Dots song. Yeah. I, I want to be like Billy Baxter. And there was a, during the late 70s into the 80s, the Don Lane show was the big late night chat show where touring musicians and local celebrities would come on and do their thing so Paul Kelly and the Dots came on and played that song on uh, the Don Lane show and Billy Baxter himself came on to do <laughs> a magic trick and really? uh, yeah, he. I remember this. I tried searching for this on YouTube. It's not there. So any listeners out there who have access to this footage, put it up on YouTube. Don would say, oh, "So tell me about yourself," and he'd talk a little bit about himself. Like I do magic tricks. So I'll <laughs> show me one. So he said, "Well, uh, can you give me a twenty dollar note?" And then he'd rip up this twenty dollar note in front of Don, and then he said, "Oh, uh, I've forgotten how the rest of this trick works." <laughs> and then he went straight to a commercial. Uh, but um, yeah, fun times. I think that that incident may actually be in the new Paul Kelly biography. I haven't read it, but I've heard stories that the Don Lane Show appearance was uh, mentioned in the book. So anyone out there who's already read the new Stuart Coop written book about Paul Kelly can post to the page and confirm that or not. It's a book I do mean to get to, but haven't got meant to yet. But yeah, no, uh, so I came back to the song. Frickin' shit scared. No, fantastic song. It sort of reminds me of the eels in a way. It's got the beauty yeah. of uh, an eel song. It has that sense of anxiety that eels had. Shit scared by title, you sort of think, is this going to be a comedic thing? But yeah. it sort of has, it's a song about anxiety and it's really heartwarming. And then you think about that great eel song, It's a Motherfucker. And you sort of think, is this going to be a joke song? But it's really a beautiful song about love. And the title is sort of misleading you quite deliberately as to what you can expect in the song. So, yeah, no, great track. All right, Dave. For my fourth track in the collection of memories of gigs, CDs, set lists, posters, places, the smell of cigarette smoke as well uh, is evoked throughout this compilation. <laughs> I, I went, went with one that I didn't know much about. These sort of compilations are, are really great in terms of the finds that you can make and being able to chase up on artists and being able to complete your collections. So I've gone with Swirl and Brand New Day. evocative sort of shoegaze type feel also reminded me a bit of Manson's Chad Who Loved Me from uh, previous Love That Album episode that I appeared on. Indeed. That's a really beautifully intense song. I, I, look, I think I vaguely remember hearing Last Unicorn on the Triple R Breakfast Show, but that's pretty much all I'd heard of Swell All I remembered. So were they a band that you'd seen? No, they were a Sydney band and I never got a, a chance to see them. But out of this compilation, it's one that I intend on following up a fair bit on. Yeah, it's got a beautiful uh, wash of guitar on this song. Really, really lovely. And Nicola Schultz's voice, it has something of that ethereal feel 
that was part of the Erosa track that I mentioned before, and also Meredith Sussex's voice from the Paradise Motel, who I mentioned before. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a sucker for that vocal style. Yeah, I, I noticed that you do have quite a high collection of female vocalists and artists on these compilations, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> what I can remember of the 90s and the pub scene, it was generally very male-dominated, generally sort of speaking, but there were a few bands with female members and you do seem to have captured quite a number of them in these compilations. I think it's important to, to capture them, but also it's it's just um, my collection and my enthusiasm and passion too. So it's worked out really well to get that balance right. It may never be 50-50 for the reasons you mentioned, but hopefully, yeah, on the next compilation, there's amazing uh, female vocalists already in the can so yeah watch this space alright so we're going to go now to my final pick this is the final go round and this is a band that features the man that I declare the hardest working musician in uh, rock music in Australia the band is Rail the song is Eclipse the man himself Ash Naylor Another band I got into after the fact, after I discovered Even. I love the two albums, Bad Hair Day and Goodbye Surfing, Hello God, which is a lovely Beach Boys, Brian Wilson reference there. I think I just prefer Bad Hair Day a little bit over Goodbye Surfing because it has a little bit of a warmer production style to my ears, but they're both really, really great albums. But yeah, Ash, God, what doesn't he do? Dave, you and I always sort of bringing him up at work, you know, besides even there was The Grapes, which I've been a huge fan of for years, The Marshmallow Overcoat, which has been a project he's been working on the last few years with Davy Lane and Brett Paul Wolfenden. Kelly's band. Paul Kelly's band, guitarist for Rockwiz. The um, Church. Oh, yes, you're right. I've forgotten that. Oh, my Lord. Is there anything he doesn't do? The Stems, or should I say the Stevens? Sorry? What, what do you mean the Stevens? Are they changing their name? No, it was just a merging of members of <laughs> the Stems and Even. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Yeah, oh, my God. Does he ever sleep? Does he ever go out for dinner? And, of course, you're forgetting uh, the band that started it all, Swarm. <laughs> oh, I don't know them. They had their lead singer, ABC. Francis, Francis Leach? Francis Leach. From Triple J. Yeah. Yeah, no, hard-working man. I read where the members of Rail were huge fans of Big Star, and I can't remember which video clip it is, but there's one clip where the lead singer, Dan, is playing his guitar, but he's always covering up his t-shirt but i see the top of his t-shirt it looks like the big star design but i can't be quite sure it doesn't surprise me rail does sound like the next step a logical evolution or when they say that they're fans of big star it's no surprise to me musically they are worshiping at that church and this sort of sounds to me like his vocals uh dan's vocals sound to me a little bit like ben folds who i'm a huge fan of so ben folds leading big star i don't know and teenage fan club oh yes 
Absolutely. And they were here a lot during the 90s. Oh, yeah. Uh, five tours of the 90s, I think, some of that. So the song Eclipse, which you have on Sound Is Ever 2, it's not on either of those albums. So was that on an EP or something? They were originally called Sleeper, and they did an independent EP under that name. It's very, very hard to find. And then they became Fragment for the Young Blood compilation, and they hated that name. So they, when they got signed to White Records, they had the chance to change names, and they did become Rail. So... This track was re-recorded as a B-side. I can't remember which of the singles it became as a B-side. So this was on the Sleeper EP and totally out of print and a completely better version, I think, than the B-side, the future B-side. So this always stuck with me as as rare, for sure, and that they loved my idea when I pitched this one. So, yeah. Really warm-sounding production and just crackles. It's just good sunshine pop. Yeah, and Rail were like a parallel band with even at the time. And... They were more Dan's band, though, than Ash's. Totally. It was, it was Dan doing the writing. It was more Ash bringing what he does in terms of the sound. And I think that's why Ash more focused on his own work with Even. And that and Even were seeming to be gaining more traction at the time. I think that's true. I think Ash's commitments, yeah, ultimately meant he had to leave the band, I think, by the time the second album came around. Although Wally's kept on with the Meanies all these years, he's managed to find that balance. I think the Meanies haven't been quite as active as yeah. Even, but yeah, no, it's great that the Meanies still exist. Indeed, great that Even still exists. And they're just yep. about to release a new anthology of their favourite covers. Yeah, I think that's come out. I think I've seen people with their CD and vinyl versions. I need that in my life. I mean, look, I, I believe it's, it's all previous released material. I've got, I think, a couple of songs that were on the bonus CD that came with the initial run of Come Again. And Your Bird Can Sing, their version of the uh, Beatles classic from Revolver is one. And I think... Is that the one that had, I'm always touched by your presence, dear, from Blondie? Yeah. I think they might have done as well. But this song, Eclipse, it just great piece of sunshiny pop. And I would like to have seen Rail be a little bit more part of the conversation. And Rail were just a fantastic stepping stone and always a, a good band to see. I was uh, fortunate enough to see them uh, thanks to those arranging activities through Monash Uni. Great. They played, played a few uni nights. Oh, so did you organise those gigs? No. <laughs> so, so it's, it's to me like you were saying like you were part of the student union you were arranging this no no i was just one of the poor saps who who went in whatever direction they said to go and i think we were, were lucky at the time that many of the universities rmit latrobe monash just had very good student union bodies who did pick very good band at the time and it, it's sad in a way to to see that sort of demise in terms of support for for the art sector thank you governor yeah, very true. Yeah, one final band that I've I've seen Ash play in. He's been part of the Ronson Hang Up with Cram. I've heard the name. I didn't know Ash was associated with that. Yeah, with the Pinkerton um, Pinkerton, Pinkerton boys. Yeah. yeah, they could be anyone. Those guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Scott, your final pick. I'm going to feature Talot Talot. You say you are an angel. I say you are a liar. Bombs work in a boxcar With sea sperm and saliva What submarine would rescue me From midday monkey slaughter Electricity would be as lighting underwater Electricity would be free 
Owen and Stanley, and I didn't know this, they were previously in a band called Man in the Wood. I don't know if you've heard of that band. And then they evolved into Lot Tuller. They had their probably their biggest Triple J hit with the Girlfriend song. Mm-hmm. Um, so this track was from an unreleased EP that they were set to release around 96, 97, and apparently Owen got heavily involved with the career and the, and the production and the songwriting with Meryl Bainbridge. And when she took off, Tlot Tlot lost some momentum and they called it a day. And then Stanley went on to form Ruck Rover. So I would like to re- release this whole EP at some point, uh, maybe digitally. But yeah, I'm really glad to have them on the comp. Well, this song is very different to anything else. It's on the Pistol Butts at Winkle, which is more of an electric guitar sort of album mm. uh, with electronics. And this one is very heavily acoustic. I mean, I think I mentioned Violet Femmes earlier on, and this certainly sounds like it could belong on an early Violet Femmes yeah, album. Or a Lux Smith album or something like that. I think I might have seen... Certainly I saw Ruck Rover as a support for Weddows yep. at a, uh, an end-of-year Christmas show, but I think I might have even seen Talot Talot at one of those Widows shows. I can't be 100%, but I think I did. Uh, but yeah, no, this is a lot of fun. You're hoping to be able to talk them into releasing more material in the future. This EP is so great, this unreleased EP. So I think even if it's just a digital album, I'd like the band to come up with a cover and some liner notes, some recollections, and we could reveal that to people in the new year. That's my plan. Yep. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> um, all right, Dave, you get to close it out. We're going to Ballarat for uh, my uh, final band, and they were a band that I was put on to by a bloke named Anthony Clark, who uh, filmed a lot of bands back in the, the 90s and is uh, still filming them and putting a number of gigs online on YouTube. And they are the Mavises. managed to get quite big in the late 90s and I managed to see them at the Hallam Hotel when they were supporting Regurgitator. But in this song, it, it's just the brother and sister duo, so Becky and Matt Thomas, or Becky Collada and Matt Doll. They had a habit of naming each other after the previous band that they uh, come from. So they were in a band called Collada and Dolls. Yeah, the Dolls uh, was uh, Matt's previous band. All right. And Matt was playing with uh, Kirsty Stegwazi. I I can vaguely recall during the mid-90s. And there is actually online a support gig that the Mavisons did from 93 when they were boarding Kirsty Stegwazi when she was doing a CD launch at the... One of your favourite venues, Morris, The Empress. Oh, all right. The least said about The Empress. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, I'll I'll tell you off air. Um, I don't think I got into pink pills at the time. It wasn't really my thing, but I do remember seeing advertised the Mavis's acoustic, so just the brother and sister doing their gig. There seemed to be a lot of acoustic gigs, and listening to the cut on this album, I wish... I'd sort of gone to a gig or something like that to see them at the time because this cut's gorgeous. Did they ever record as a duo? Um, I don't think so. And, yeah, this is the only form that this song exists when we were looking for rare and unreleased. So it just jumped out at me as being a great one. 
And a great album closer. Yeah, well, it felt right. To, yeah, Getting the track listing right is, is a fun challenge. It's a science. Uh, I do enjoy it. I can put a bit of me into it when I do the curating. Yeah. A good chunk of your fame is to do with your uh, curatorial skills <laughs> and knowing how to put that mixed tape, or in this case, this compilation, together. Yeah, fingers Pretty crossed. Good. Yeah, thank you. Well, there you go, folks. There are our 15 picks. But, of course, there's another 25 songs. And that's just on the two compilations that are already existing. And I know that you have more plans in the new year, Scott. So if people have been listening to this and they've been inspired, how can they get hold of these compilations either as a download or as a physical media? I presume you still have CDs available. Yeah, we only did 500 pressing um, and we're, we're chipping away at that. They're all individually numbered, which the fans and myself love. But we do, we do have some left. But once they're gone, they're gone. So hmm. the easiest way is from the Bandcamp site. So if people type in sound as ever, Australian Indie 1999, it comes up, or they can actually email sound as ever 1999 at gmail.com and, and I can help steer people towards that. But yeah, Google, we're coming up pretty well on Google. It's just a long web title for the Bandcamp site, but sound as ever 1999 Bandcamp, we'll find it. Mm, I'll definitely put a, a link in Thank to you. the show notes. I mean, I know you've got some things under wrap, but is there anything you want to reveal about what's happening in 2021 with the project because it it just sounds like you've got a huge amount of work ahead of you. I mean, officially, there will be two new compilations and the Earthmen launch. And we're talking to the members about merch. We just, uh, the first T-shirt was really popular with the Pandas Club on it. And we just did a survey of people. We're going to do a Sydney pub next. Mm. And it came down to a battle between the Hopetown and the Annandale. And the Annandale won for that design. So we'll do that in the new year. We maybe, if the demand's there, can move state by state for pubs. But we've got a whole lot of other ideas for merch and, and other things. And, yeah, we're just taking it slow and steady. It's important. There's not a lot of us involved technically. Our members, our member base is massive, but yeah, behind the scenes, there's not a lot of lot of people involved. So yeah. we've got the Governor Hindmarsh from Adelaide on on the phone at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've been getting a lot of feedback through the groups. I know that the feedback has been really, really positive for these projects and for these CDs. But has there been anyone who was maybe born in the late 90s or in the early 2000s who wasn't part of that scene who's gotten back to you and said, look, I've just heard about this. This music really appeals to me. Has there been anyone who wasn't even around at the time? Or maybe have you heard back from people who downloaded it from overseas who knew nothing of these bands? Yeah, there's definitely younger members in the group. I can tell that. And I'm friends with some and there's just some other people that love Australian music that sort of buy on my recommendation and things like that and I'm still personally discovering artists that I didn't know about so through the members and and other things so the musical journey never ends fantastic all right well I just wanted to say huge thanks to both of you. It's been an absolute treat and a pleasure. This episode is being recorded three, four days out from the end of 2020. And I'm really hoping to have this out before people start singing Old Lang Syne because I need to have an episode out for this month. Uh, Look, what we're going to do is I'm going to go to a break and I'll talk with the listeners about what to be expecting in January and February. But just huge thanks to both of you. Thank you so much 
for uh, being part of this conversation and to you Scott for bringing these albums and bringing this group into my life and to you Dave for being an ongoing support and knowing that I can just sort of go on hiatus for six months and you'll just take over and for our conversations every day at work thank you it's been great fun thank you once again for having me mate no No worries all right we're going to go to a final break and then I'll come and talk to you about what's happening next month on love that album for episode what is it lost count 142 you're listening to love that album Once again, my huge thanks to Scott Thurling and to David Blom for talking to me about 90s indie music. Scott and his partners in the Sound As Ever project are doing terrific work in getting music out there. They're archiving music that would have otherwise just sat gathering dust in the musicians' shoeboxes. So I encourage you to go out and make sure that the fruit of their labours are recognised by you, the music-loving, music-listening public. I'll put some notes in the show description so you can know how you can pick yourself up a copy of either one of those two terrific anthologies. So as I'm recording this, 2020 is about to get the boot into the arse and good riddance as most of us are thinking, I'm sure. I just wanted to take the time to say thank you so much to anyone who's ever downloaded an episode or contributed to an episode over the last 12 months. You don't need me to re-emphasize for you just how difficult a time it's been, but putting these shows together, as always, is a complete joy for me because I get to speak to wonderful people about music. That's not only been on the podcast, it's also been in the Facebook discussion group. That sort of thing has really kept me going over the year, just having something to do thinking about the thing that I love and that I know is important to all of you listeners, which is music and the discussion thereof. We don't always have to agree as to what's great, but just the fact that we can have wonderful discussions about the whole concept of music that we love just made things a whole lot easier for me. I've already got a whole bunch of shows planned out for 2021. They could be liable to change, but at the moment I've got about six or seven shows already sort of worked out what I want to do in the new year. And so I'm going to make the best of starts by taking January off. Yep, there'll be no new Love That Album over January in 2021. We'll start up again in February. I'll be joined by a fellow called Joe Lavelle. If you're a listener to the all-time top 10 podcast, and indeed you should be, then that name will be no stranger to you. Joe will be joining me in February and we'll be talking about the album Magnetic South, by ex-monkey Mike Nesmith and the first national band. So you can expect a whole lot of monkey talk, liquid paper talk and country rock talk on next month's episode because you know we like to do a whole lot of peripheral discussion as well as the main album under focus. Along with David Daskal, Joe Lavelle is certainly one of my favourite guests on the all-time top 10 podcast so I'm really looking forward to having him join me for this show. So once again that'll be taking place in February 
of 2021. Be taking January off from Love That Album, although there will be new episodes of C here, and I'll be joining Ben on an episode of All Time Top 10 and Mike White on an episode of The Projection Booth. So not quite moving away from the podcasting world, but just thought I'd give this show a break for a little bit. So wherever you are in the world, I hope things are going well for you. It's still going to be tough for quite a few months. This whole COVID thing is spiraling up in some parts of the world and gone down in this end of the world, thank goodness. Look after yourself. Look after your loved ones. Try to be considerate of people you don't even know. Wear a mask. Keep your distance. Don't get aggressive. Have a little bit of patience with people and just generally be nice. That's really the mantra for this show. Be nice to each other. All right. Until 2021, look after yourselves. We'll speak to you soon. Cheers. the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.